Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the in-house podcast of the McDonald Laurie Institute. I'm Aaron Woodrick, the director for MLI's Domestic Policy Program. And today on the podcast, we're going to be talking global energy security and critical minerals. And to do that, I'm very pleased to be joined by Jeff Kucharski, a senior fellow at MLI and adjunct professor at Royal Roads University, and Heather Exner Perot, a senior policy analyst with the MLI's Indigenous Policy Program. Jeff, Heather, thank you very much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Nice to be here. Now, one of the reasons, of course, we have you here today is because you have co-authored a forthcoming MLI paper, the title of which is Canada's Role in Global Energy Security, Practical Considerations for a Low-Carbon Transition, as well as, Heather, you also have another paper coming out with us soon entitled Preparing for the Upswing, the Growing Demand for Critical Minerals in Canada's Roles and Responsibilities. I thought today we might talk energy security first. And I think maybe the obvious question for you, Jeff, is a lot of people, they don't think about energy in terms of security. So maybe you could explain why is it important that we do that? Sure. Well, energy is essential to a modern economy. So without energy, there's no way to provide energy services like power and heat to homes and businesses or to manufacturing plants. So energy is necessary to a properly functioning economy. But it's not just that we need energy, we need reliable, good quality energy. And what I mean there is that energy must be there when we need it in the right amount and in the right form. And energy, particularly electricity, must be of high quality because modern high-tech manufacturing, research, hospitals, for example, all require that electricity be delivered within tight tolerances of frequency range and voltage. So since reliable high quality energy is so essential to an economy, it's necessary to secure it so that energy supply is delivered without interruption. It's important to the national security of a country that energy be secured. That's why energy security is such an important concept. Energy security is therefore about ensuring stable, affordable and sustainable supplies of energy. Now, there are many sources for the energy we use, and they can be divided in different ways, such as between renewable and non-renewable and so on. And there are also alternative energy sources like nuclear that have characteristics of both. Some energy sources are relatively scarce and their production is concentrated in certain countries and regions, say the Middle East, for example. Others like wind and solar can be generated in a wider range of locations, but are also geographically specific in some ways. Oil is the commodity that has traditionally been extremely important to energy security because it's the foundation for so many products like gasoline, jet fuel, lubricants. It's also the basis of petrochemicals. So for about 150 years, energy security was all about ensuring access to oil. Wars were fought over access to oil in the Middle East, for example, but also in the Indo-Pacific and World War II. These days, the concept of energy security has been broadened to include many other energy sources, including other types of hydrocarbons like natural gas, but also renewables and very recently critical minerals as well. I'll be publishing a paper with MLI on this topic soon, so stay tuned for more on that. But I think that probably is a good summary of why it's important to secure energy. 
Yeah, and just a quick follow-up. So it sounds like there's actually sort of two aspects to energy security. One is a geographic aspect, and then one is about the type of energy itself in, in terms of its reliability. Is that a fair encapsulation of it? Yes. Geographically, you know, right now, oil and gas or hydrocarbons in general are specific to only certain regions of the world. And that confers some geopolitical benefits on those countries. They can use it for good or for ill. But it makes it more important for countries that are highly dependent on imports of oil and gas, let's say, to have secure sources of energy. And that's why energy security is so important to countries like Japan, South Korea, and others in the Indo-Pacific, because they rely almost totally on imports from the Middle East, which is itself a rather unstable place. Lots of wars and instability have been there over the years. So geography is really important. Makes sense. Heather, I wanted to ask you, in your paper, there's a consensus on the need to reduce carbon emissions. I think everybody knows that needs to happen. But often the details of that transition are just sort of glossed over. Your paper touches on some of the practical considerations for that process. So could you maybe expand on what some of those practical considerations are? In my background, I did some security studies. And one of the famous lines that they say in the military is that Amateurs talk strategy and professionals talk logistics. And I think we've been talking about strategy for a long time and climate and energy, and we really have not been talking about the logistics nearly enough, certainly not at the political level. And I think, yes, there is consensus, there's strong public political will to do something about climate change, but we're very far from figuring out the logistics of this or appreciating the logistics. So in terms of oil and gas, and Jeff knows this, and many, many people know this, 80% of global primary energy, it comes from fossil fuels. And so to think about that it took, like Jeff says, 150 years to build up this system and the refining and the transportation, production, and, and everything that goes around that. And to think that we want to transition quickly off of that, that we built, we've never had 8 billion people who didn't rely on fossil fuels. So it's a very daunting task. And I don't think any serious person thinks that can be done quickly because there aren't much better sources of energy than oil and gas. They're just uniquely transportable, uniquely dense. And even though they are geographically concentrated, like Jeff says, they're actually relatively competitive. Whereas when you're talking about, you know, the critical minerals that we touched on moving to renewables and wind and solar and transmission, nuclear, those kinds of mines are actually much more geographically concentrated and will be even more competitive, harder to get your hands on, or there'll be a few countries that have monopolies over some of those things. Moving to nuclear, moving to wind and solar, there's a tremendous cost involved. We don't currently have the raw materials to do it. We don't currently have the financing to do it. Systems are not in place to move it over. There isn't the capacity, the labor, the know-how to build nuclear at scale in a lot of places, for example, it become very expensive. So there's so many things where we say, oh, we should all move to wind and solar. A thousand things that have to happen between that today and that happening at some scale. People just need to appreciate like, the logistics of what needs to happen here in the next 20, 30 years. So is it fair to say implicit in your message here that while it's all fine and well to say we need to make this shift, it's actually really hard to do and it's it may take a lot longer than some people are hoping for? Unfortunately, it isn't happening yet because we haven't figured out the logistics and cheap energy is so crucial to economies, to societal well-being, to health, to education, to everything. We're probably going to have a new peak for oil demand in the next year or two. Some people hope that COVID 2019 might have been the peak. And it's obviously not. It looks like it's going to set to rise for at least another decade before it plateaus. It's not set to drop anytime soon. And a big part of that reason is we have seven and a half billion people today 
Well, we're going to have 9 billion people. We're going to reach that at some point. And a lot of those people are moving from extreme poverty to more of a higher level of income, which is fantastic. But people in middle incomes use more energy. That's part of what getting out of poverty is, is it means you have more energy use per capita. So the oil and gas demand, even if we all went down per capita, there's going to be a couple, you know, another billion or two billion people in the near term to worry about that. And coal, here's another one where I think people hope that we had reached the high point of coal use 2013, 2014. And now Jeff knows this well, because we don't have enough We've cut supply of oil. We've cut supply of LNG. LNG went very expensive. Natural gas went very expensive. Now coal is set. The IA thinks we'll hit a record use of coal for power production next year. There's still a high demand for energy. There's a growing demand for energy, and we don't have replacements for fossil fuels yet. Well, I was just going to ask about what was going to happen with the global energy going forward. I think you've already done that pretty robustly. So maybe I'll ask Jeff, in terms of meeting this growing demand, how is Canada positioned to do this, whether that's from fossil fuel sources or, or for new renewable energy sources? Where Canada sits today, do we have policies that are going to ensure we can take advantage of that growing demand? I think Canada is in a unique position, first of all, because our energy security is not really a major policy concern in Canada because we have an abundance of it from all different kinds of sources, right? So, for example, over 60% of all the electricity generated in Canada comes from hydro, and we also have nuclear, and we also have hydrocarbons, and we're gradually phasing out coal in the electricity sector. And in fact, we have a surplus of all of these sources, which we export primarily right now to the United States and potentially in the future as pipelines get built to the West Coast. And then we'll have the opportunity to export oil and natural gas to countries that are highly dependent on imports of those commodities. So Canada is in a really unique position. We can generate a lot of very clean, low emissions electricity in this country already. I think with uh, CCUS, that's carbon capture, utilization and storage technology gradually being implemented, even the hydrocarbon use can be extended because we can sequester those emissions underground. And we can also produce other energy commodities like ammonia, for example, which countries like Japan and others will be needing so that they can produce hydrogen from it in the future. So as long as we continue to have policies that promote the export of those energy commodities we have in abundance, I think we'll be okay. I mean, there's some question about whether the Canadian government is truly committed to ensuring that all the barriers are removed from the export of our hydrocarbon resources. But as it stands at the moment, we do have the Trans Mountain Pipeline on schedule to be completed in the next year or so. We do have one and possibly three LNG export terminals that will be complete in the next two to five years. And we already have a new propane export capacity built at Ridley Terminal on the West Coast. So we're getting there. We're getting to the point where we're going to be able to move these commodities offshore, which will open up trade and expand our relationships with countries, particularly in the Indo-Pacific. So I think as long as we continue to have policies that 
support the production and export of our energy resources, I think we'll be fine. Heather, I wanted to pick up on that point. One, are you in agreement that policies we have right now are things we can take advantage of? Are there obstacles that we need to get out of the way? And one other thing that Jeff had mentioned earlier on was nuclear. And that's something that I think in terms of energy transition, that's often not a big part of the conversation. Do you think it needs to be a more prominent part of the conversation when we're talking about energy transitions? Okay, well, great question. First, I'll pick up where Jeff left off there on on kind of the oil and gas side. I think a lot of people know Canada is a major exporter of oil and to a less degree, but certainly also a major exporter of natural gas, almost primarily to the United States. But we're also, we have the third largest reserves in the world. And the other ones that have large reserves are not democracies, the biggest democracy with reserves. And if we're still going to need oil and gas 40, 50 years from now, and whether it's for burning, and some of it will have to be for burning, hopefully much less of it, or whether it's for other materials, petrochemicals, carbon fiber, other things, we're still going to need oil and gas for a while. In the paper, we address this, but with the oil sands, there's often a criticism that it's an expensive source and that we should shut it down. But it has one huge advantage that we're starting to see now. The Canadian oil and gas has almost never been as profitable. The oil sands have never been as profitable as they are now because they have huge upfront capital costs, but now they have very low depletion rates. As we reduce financing and investment and capital into oil and gas, the oil sands will still be chugging along long after, kind of in the shale, for example. Less depletion, a lot more longevity. They're already quite profitable. So Canada is poised there, but there have not been any new oil sands mines in quite a while. One policy in particular, for example, is the emissions cap. So the current Minister of Climate Change and the Environment wants to impose an emissions cap. And I think that's, in one sense, very good. We do want an emissions cap. And a lot of the production is lowering its emissions intensity. There is a way to make that circle square. But for example, if we want to increase LNG, and Jeff just talked about how we want to have three LNG terminals exporting LNG, which is seen as a cleaner burning fuel that can replace coal in Asia. Uh, And if you're kind of a pragmatic environmentalist, a very good idea. Well, how will that square? Can we do the LNG on top of the oil sands if we have an emissions cap? So some of, I think the policies are not 100% thought through on kind of global needs, the need to keep production at least steady, if not increase. Oil is about to hit $100 a barrel. There's not enough supply coming on. We, there is a deficit in investment in oil and gas. There's nowhere for oil to go but up kind of in the medium term. And I think maybe at some point, some of our allies are going to wonder why isn't Canada doing more? The United States is already asking OPEC and Russia to produce more oil. An interesting dilemma I think we'll find ourselves in five or 10 years. And then just to get to your point about nuclear, I'm from Saskatchewan, so it's kind of our pride, you know, that uh, northern Saskatchewan has the best deposits of uranium in the world, the richest deposits. Cameco and Arano are top exporters of uranium. And so there's a real incentive, a real bonus for Canada to lead in, in expanding nuclear. I think the tides turned that people are seeing that if we do want a zero carbon future, nuclear has to be part of that. China is going full bore on developing nuclear. They become very good at it. The costs are going down of nuclear in China. And if we could get good at developing nuclear plants again in the West, you know, the cost of that could also go down. And there's a role in Canada providing, you know, that critical 
um, strategic source of, of uranium, and also in developing technology for small modular reactors, which I'm sure we'll all be talking more about, but just a slight, a more accessible, more dynamic way to bring nuclear power to different places. Yeah, absolutely. Jeff, I want to pivot back to something that Heather had just mentioned about security, talking about how our allies are looking to OPEC to pump out more oil. We've talked about the opportunities for Canada. What do you see as emerging security risks for Canada and for our allies going forward in terms of energy security? Right. Well, let me just build a bit on some of the things that Heather said, and I would just draw your attention to what's going on right now in Ukraine and Russia with the threat that Russia is making to Ukraine. If there's a situation arises where economic sanctions are ramped up against Russia because of an invasion, let's say, of Ukraine, there's going to be a huge energy crisis in Europe. And the U.S. is now busy planning and thinking about how they can meet that demand and fill the gap should Russian oil and gas exports be removed from the equation. And Canada, unfortunately, is in no position to be a player in this because we just don't have the export capacity in our country to help this energy security crisis that's possibly looming. So I just want to throw that out there as something to consider, but certainly a risk. There are lots of risks on the horizon. And I think as the energy transition unfolds, some energy security concerns are going to fade away to some extent. Some will remain and others will shift significantly. For example, along with a greater reliance on renewables comes a greater need for the critical minerals needed in their manufacture. Canada now has a list of 31 minerals on its critical mineral list and is busy trying to strengthen supply chains for those minerals. Many of them are absolutely essential to the low carbon transition for clean tech, for wind turbines, for example, and to battery technologies. There are risks because critical minerals, like oil, uh, only exist in differing concentrations in a few countries and regions. Canada is blessed that we have abundance in, in, in about 11 critical minerals, but there's going to be increased risk of disruption in supply of critical minerals going forward because some countries like Russia or China, for example, may use their capacity for either mining them or processing them as leverage against other countries. Meanwhile, an expected increase in the use of nuclear power will mean increased dependence on uranium imports for some countries. That has potential proliferation risks as nuclear technology is diffused more uh, around the world. And it's an attractive source of energy because it's zero carbon emissions. I think one of the things that worries me the most when we talk about fossil fuels is that if investment in upstream fossil fuel production, exploration and production continues to dwindle, you're going to find that high cost producers are likely to be forced out of the market and countries where state-owned national oil and gas companies predominate will become stronger. And I'm thinking here particularly of Russia again and China, uh, because these national oil companies, these state-owned companies currently control over 65% of global oil reserves and 60% of global oil production. And as Heather pointed out, Canada is one of the few democratic countries in the world with very large reserves. So it's very important 
that Canada be a player, that we complete these export projects so that we can actually provide energy security to our allies and partners and reduce some of these risks to energy security going forward. Yes, certainly sounds like our allies will be counting on us to deliver. Heather, Jeff had mentioned critical minerals. I know you've written a separate piece that's coming out with us on critical minerals. And I just was hoping you might be able to get down to critical minerals 101, because a lot of folks may have heard the term critical minerals, but they may not know exactly what that means. I'm I'm not going to quiz you to list all 30 odd critical minerals, but maybe if you just sort of explain what are critical minerals and what makes them so important? I'm the perfect person for 101 because this is the last couple of years new to me too. So they're not inherently critical. They're, it's governments that say that they're critical. Canada has said there's 31 that are critical for our economy and for our needs. And the United States has you know a slightly different list. It's not a geological aspect of it that makes it critical. It's its importance to modern life. For example, silver and gold are not on there, maybe because they're not critical to the digital technologies that we use or to green energy even though they're important minerals. And whereas potash, which is not a metal and not used in renewables, is still deemed a critical mineral because it produces fertilizer that we need to eat and to have kind of industrial agriculture. So what makes them critical is that they may have some supply issues. They may have geographically concentrated. They may be very important for modern life. And we need to make sure that we have a secure supply. And to that end, like you said, with our allies, we did develop an MOU with the United States two years ago, maybe three years ago now, that's 2022 on critical minerals. And again, the United States wanted to make sure that there is a good supply and a good supply chain of minerals, again, to support their economy and their modern life in a green transition, making sure that Canada is a good player there. The common ones that we think are probably going to have their demand greatly expanded with the green or low carbon energy transition are things like copper, nickel, lithium, cobalt, also some rare earths, which people I think If they've heard of anything, I've heard that rare earths are a security issue because China has such a monopoly on the mining and processing of them. So the idea is that if we are going to have a green energy transition, the IEA thinks we need to mine, you know, uh, between four and five times more product than we have right now. It takes in Canada 10 to 15 years. But in a lot of places, it takes that long to get a mine up and running. The concentrations of ore are going to get less and less as we look for different mines, less producing mines across the world, kind of scrambling for these resources. And investment still isn't in the mining sector. There still isn't a lot of investment. It's kind of been, when I talk about upswing and downswing of a commodity cycle, where prices for a long time are above historical average, and then when they're below historical average. And commodity prices have been quite poor since 2014, which also means that the sector has been starved of investment for almost a decade, which means that we do not have new mines coming online. We do not have this new product coming in line in a way that would be consistent with a quick transition to net zero by 2050. So that's why it's important. There is no, you know, when people say solar and wind are renewable, well, everything in that windmill and that turbine and everything in that solar panel and everything in the transmission lines that carries their electricity, you know, to the consumer is made of non-renewable mining product, uh, basically. And so we need a lot more mining if we want to have this low carbon energy future. It sounds like a great opportunity for Canada. Again, we're very blessed to have the geography that we do. It's positioned us well for a lot of these opportunities and will certainly make us very important to our allies in the coming years. So this has been a great conversation. I'd love to thank Jeff and Heather for joining me today. And of course, to our listeners for listening in, and we'll catch you next time on Podless Canada. 